Welcome to the Schneps Connects podcast. This is the host, Josh Schneps. This is part of our Race for New York City Mayor series, where I'll be interviewing the leading contenders to be the next mayor of New York City. Today, I'm happy to have on the show Ray McGuire, who is part of that race. Ray has a unique background versus many of the other candidates in that he's never been an elected official, but he has a long and successful career in a leadership role on Wall Street. This has been a big part of his campaign as many voters will be focused on the economic recovery of New York City. He would also be only the second African-American mayor of New York City, and really compared to Mayor Bloomberg would be the only other mayor without experience working in government since the five boroughs were consolidated in the year 1898. Ray currently resides on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. He's married and has three children ranging in age from eight to 20. Ray, it's great to have you on the show. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. It is, uh, it's an honor. It's an honor. So thank you for inviting me. Great to have you here. And we know that you stepped down from a major position as vice chair at Citigroup in order to run for mayor. And I really would love to hear more about your career and why you think it helps your candidacy and how your experience would be a benefit to running the city and particularly the initiatives to restart the economy. So if, if you will, listen, I have been fortunate to be in New York City. That's what I've done. And if you permit me, I'll tell you who I am. Absolutely. Informs what I've done and why it is that I decided to quit my job, which is the most difficult conversation I've had with my 94-year-old mother, <laughs> and to, uh, to take on this journey. So that was a whole other conversation, which we'll get to. But, you know, after you must be out of your natural born mind, once we got through that conversation, then I told her why I was doing this. So, uh, and it's an honor to have her with us at 94 years old. You know, I started, and I mentioned my mother because she's at the foundation of who I am. I started on the other side of the tracks where I grew up in Dayton, Ohio, across the street from the Howard paper mill. You know, that sometimes used to mint fumes that were so strong that the only way that we could breathe was to open the refrigerator door. But that's kind of indicative of, of where I lived. And my mother, single mother, I didn't know my father, single mother who raised me and my two brothers. And at any point in time, and with my grandparents, at any point in time, we had half a dozen foster children or so in the home. And so my single mother... You know, I, I know the debates that she had to go through. Sometimes it was as a social worker. She was a social worker. So debate was, do you put food on the table? Do you pay Dayton Power and Light, the gas and electric bill, or do you tie, put ties in the church plate? I know what that debate is like. Now of the debate, overhearing some of the debates between she and her boss, and they would say, you know, well, you can decide. We need you here at this hour. And she said, you know, I got my children. And so I need to make sure that my children are okay before they go to school. That debate is a still debate that takes place. And so I remember, you know, having no money where we used to wash tin foil. I know what that's like. I know where you get the ends of those bars of soap when you kind of boil them to put them all together, convince yourself that you got a, you got a full bar of soap. I know what that's like. So I know what it's like not to have. And I remember the sacrifices that my mother made in order that I could have a have an education. Education got me out. Education is my only ticket out. And maybe we'll come back to that a little bit, Josh, but education was key. So that's what I guess they call my lived experience. 
And so my lived experience, and I came to New York, I had three things. I had three things I had. I had a great education. I had no money. And I had a lot of debt. And New York has been, it's been great. It's where I met my wife, as you said, and we got three children. New York has been good to me. It's been good to me because I came here with a lot of promise. And I was able to compete in one of the most competitive fields that exists anywhere. And able to go from the bottom, from the bottom to the top and stay there for a long time. And so it's a city that I love. City has given me everything. And I look at where we are today, Josh, and we're facing three existential crises at once. It's a crisis of COVID. It's a crisis of the economy as a result of COVID and for many before COVID. And it's a crisis of this racial and religious segregation. All those have convened. New Yorkers are afraid. They're afraid of losing their job. They're afraid of getting COVID. Afraid of, like me, they're kind of afraid of getting arrested. So that's who I am. And that's the perspective that I bring. And that's why, because I love the city. Excuse me. So that's why I'm running. That's where I'm running from there. We need something different, right? So I'm like Shirley Chisholm. I'm unbought. I'm unbossed. I'm unbound. I don't know anybody, anything. So my sole objective is to do what's right for New York City. That's it. You have a terrific background. I love your story. Talk to me about the economy. What would be some of your initiatives to be able to, to restart the economy from everything we've been through with COVID? I want to take my, what they call my lived experiences, how I grew up, my foundation, and what I've been able to do in four decades in business, and all the relationships that I've been able to develop from the streets to the suites. We need that. We need all that. Nobody else has that trifecta. And so my vision for the economy, it's one of my three big, big visions for the economy is to go big and to go small. What does that mean? Going big means I want to create hundreds of thousands of jobs to infrastructure, to build infrastructure, defined as the following. Infrastructure, fractured bridges and main sewage mains and water mains. Let's fix that because that's in a state of disrepair. Number two, we need to do truly affordable housing. As you know, in the early 2000s, we built 2.2 units of housing for every new job. Today is 0.5. Truly affordable housing. The demand has so outplaced the supply that it's gotten too expensive. So we need to build housing. Number three, we need to focus on the technology world. It's the city of the future. We need to build technology. Too many of us, lower income, don't have access to broadband. Children don't have access to broadband. So we need, we need to build the city of the future, access to broadband, and give our children access to Wi-Fi, access to broadband, laptops, and, and tablets so they can participate in a non-classroom experience. So I want to go big and I want to go small. Why is that? Because small businesses employ 50% over half of New Yorkers. And right now they're suffering. Two hundred and some odd thousand small businesses. So how do I intend to address that? One, I want to get capital into these small businesses. I want to put money into the CDFI as the community banks so they can give either grants, low interest loans, or equity capital. I need to build and rebuild the small businesses because they're the lifeblood of the city. Yes. Then I want to have a small business advocate. So I need to cut the red tape and I want to have a shot clock. Why do I have a shot clock, you say? Because I want to set up a period of time, let's call it 60 days for illustrative purposes. I need to get a little more granular on that, but 60 days so that you apply 
for a small business permit to open up your business. And we have 60 days in the city to respond to that application. And if those 60 days pass, you automatically get your permit to open your business. So I don't want to hold it up into the red tape. And I want to create a small business advocate to advocate on behalf of the businesses. Businesses need to be clients of the city. They need to be customers. We need to treat them that way because they're so important to what we do. So I'm going big. I'm going small. How do I pay for the big? We can borrow the capital budget, given some of the, and I can talk to the rating agencies to do this. We know how to do this. We have uh, a lot of capital that's looking to generate a return. We can ask exit capital markets. There's so much private capital that wants to generate a return and wants to invest that we can go do that. So I've thought about how you go finance it as well. Terrific. You know, I want to jump into to some of the other um, important topics, but I'd love to touch on just the first time that I learned uh, more about you, which was really on the, the, the beautifully produced video that was created with a New York legend, Spike Lee. So I would love for you to share how that collaboration came about and what the biggest issues that you wanted to address as you were running through the city streets in that video. Well, the biggest issue that I wanted to address was were one New York. And, you know, COVID is indiscriminate, although it's had a disproportionate impact on black and brown communities, which has been so painful. What we wanted to show is Manhattan, five boroughs all together, Brooklyn, Bronx, Queens, Staten Island, all of us together, one New York. And while one New York today is going through challenges, it's that one New York, as I finish this up, if you think about if you ever dream about beating New York, then you better wake up and apologize. And so it was that inspiration, if you will, it was that idea, it was that vision of one New York that compelled us to create the video. We're all in this together. We will rise out of this together. And we're so fortunate to have our longstanding friend, Spike Lee, who was iconic. He, he is the iconic New Yorker to, to say yes to narrating. And Muta Lee, who was the director and his whole crew, extraordinary. So real gift to be able to work with them. But it's reflective of, of the great New York, the one New York. Well, let's talk about the police force. You touched on it a little bit. And obviously, I think, you know, safety, people feeling safe in their neighborhoods is, is at the top of the list as, as having a roof over their head is. And there's been a huge, not just in New York City, but nationally, everything going on with uh, communities and, and police brutality. And there's been calls for defunding parts of the NYPD. And there's been other people that feel like, listen, these are people that are putting their lives on the line. There's got to be a balance between what you're asking for and also respecting the people that are protecting us. So I'd love to hear what your stance is on this and, and how would you shape the police force as mayor? So this is really personal, obviously, as a 6'4", 200-plus pound black man. You know, you referenced the launch video, uh, day of the launch video, two to three blocks away from my home. I got pulled over, had a black driver in me. And, you know, when you do that, you don't make any false moves, kind of roll the window down, your hands are up and you respond. Eye to eye contact, you respond. No false moves. So I know what that feels like. And I've said on numerous occasions, I could be George Floyd, independent of what I've been able to accomplish. That Nobody sees that. They see me as a 6'4", big black man. And so the presumption of the burden of having to prove that I'm innocent is there. And you also mentioned, as you asked the question about respect, well, my approach to this is the following. I do not 
I do not support the language of defund. I support reallocating and reforming. My approach to the culture would be what I call RAP, R-A-P. The police need to be respectful, accountable, and proportionate. Respectful, we need to have mutual respect. I'll come back to community policing that helps establish that and trust that we used to have. Accountability, we have a database that now identifies the serial abusers who create an entire cloud over the force. You have a few bad actors, one of whom we saw commit eight minutes and 46 seconds of a cold-blooded murder. There is no trust with incident like that, with a murder like that that took place in stark relief. And we all came together as a country. One New York, one nation said, this is not who we are. We're better than this. We don't tolerate that. And so that's the approach that we need to take. So it's respect, accountability. We need to identify who the serial abusers are and we need to hold them accountable. And the community needs to see that they've been held accountable. We can't just let it pass. It's not just one more grave marker that we pass because if that's the case, that the people whom we have entrusted our safety, if they're the ones breaching it, we got a problem with that. So I wanna have respect, accountability and proportionality which means that if the only thing you have is a hammer, everything will look like a nail. When it comes to black and brown people, it's a sledgehammer, and the results of which are tragic. So I want to have that. I want to make sure that we invest in the mental health professionals. Four out of every 10 calls go to the police have to do with mental health issues. Make sure that we invest in mental health professionals. I want to make sure that we get what I might call the negotiators. You know, when you have a hostage situation, you bring the professional negotiators and they're able to resolve the situation at a large percentage of the time when include them. And I wanna invest in the community. Community organizations that one, make certain that we reduce the opportunity for people to get in trouble. The other that they're there as the violence interrupters and they exist. And then I wanna to return to community policing. Safe cities, safe streets. Community policing, if you if you populate the police force of people who look like you, you're more likely to develop that relationship. So that would be the way that I would I would reform and reallocate, reform the police department, reallocate the resources, and include co-responders as these incidents arise. I'd love to talk about public education with you. It's critical for all the families and 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 really the, the millions of people that are part of the New York City school system. As far as public education, what changes or implementations would you put in place as mayor? So listen, this is also very near and dear to me. As I said from the outset, education is how I got here. In the fifth grade, there was a teacher who identified me as somebody who had some talent. She says, you know, they're building a school out in, in the suburbs. So I walked three quarters of a mile to a mile to get to a street corner, which I'll call a bus stop, picked the bus, and I got the bus that was going from north of town to south of town take us into the suburbs. And from sixth grade to 11th grade, I was at this school. In 11th grade, I'd done really well. And the teacher said, if you're as good as they say you are, why don't you go test yourself against big boys and girls in the East? I said, where are they? I took a Greyhound bus around New England by myself at 16, looking for schools. And I was fortunate to get into a school in Connecticut called Hotchkiss for my senior year. I risk everything because this is where education was. And I went there and I applied to colleges and was able to get into a great college. And I went to Harvard College and went on to business school and law school there. Education is fundamental. Teachers changed my life, along with my mother and my grandparents, changed the course of my life. There's no more noble a profession other than the faith profession 
Teachers are there. My vision is what I call cradle to career. Pre-K has been good. So let's acknowledge that. But often what happens is that by the time our kids get to pre-K, they're already behind. So I want to start early. I want to start at zero as these children are developing their learning. So I want to make certain zero to four that they're prepared. And then I want to make certain, Josh, that by the end of the third grade, and I want to be held accountable for this, that every one of our children in New York can read. Every single child can read, either through getting it in the classroom or developing a teacher core, a tutor core. New York City tutor core, certified college students come in and teach these children how to read. Why is that? Because from zero to the end of the third grade, our children are learning to read. After that, they're reading to learn. If they never learn to read, we know the statistic, you know where they're going. So I want to do that. Then I want to make certain that the sixth grade that we begin to expose our, our students to different opportunities. They can be coders. They can be, they can be programmers. They can become welders. They can become astronomers. They can become paleontologists. I did all of that. I did a lot of it. I dug footers. I laid tile. I changed bedpans. I DC'd IVs. I, you know, I built boxes, dress boxes in the basement of Phil's dress shop. I did all of that. You know what? But I got a, I got, it was a job, kept me out of trouble. So I want to do that so that by the, and I want to start that at sixth grade and coding probably before that, by the time these kids graduate, that they have the option to go into a job or they can go to a two-year, four-year college, but they have an opportunity and they will have met people along the way and they will have had a summer job. I'm going to bring the private sector into this. They will have had a summer job. And if they decide to get a job when they graduate, I have a job waiting there because private sector has made those jobs available. Cradle to career, cradle to job. That's my education approach. Well, I love the thought process on internships because I have to tell you, it was a great experience for me, great resume builder, but it also helped me decide what I didn't want to be. (laughs) You had the option, right? You knew exactly what you did or didn't want to be. Most of these kids don't have that option. You know, going from education, I'd love to talk about the arts. I mean, it's a big part of New York City. Obviously, it's dearly missed because of covid but maybe we're the center of the universe when it comes to the arts. And I know you have a passion for art and a personal collector. So I'd love to hear a couple things from you. One, what's your favorite piece of art? And number two, really, what would you do with the arts when it comes to uh, being mayor? So I have been fortunate to collect from 300 BC knock pieces to Benin to, you know, Deborah Roberts and Derek Adams, the latest ones. Or, you know, Lynette Boyke, you, you name it. Uh, we've been fortunate to be involved in the preservation, what I call the preservation of excellence through, I don't know, a lot of decades. There's not a favorite piece. I love them all. I know where each one, each piece is. I know where each piece is. The arts are fundamental to who we are. It starts with arts education, the exposure to the arts. So arts education is fundamental. The arts are fundamental. Culture is fundamental. It gives us a sense of who we are. It inspires us. It moves us forward. It motivates us. It encourages us. And there's a gift there that the artists have, which is a gift from on high. So the arts are fundamental. When I think about the arts in the city more commercially, then I got to think about 66 million. What is 66 million? 66 million tourists who come to the city to appreciate our arts. And part of my going big, going small economic program is to revive Broadway. We need to bring the tourists back because the tourists are fundamental to the revenue base of this city. And right now, without the tourists, it is really hard. 
The budget is really hard. It's going to be tougher to balance. So the arts, in terms of who we are fundamentally, they reflect humankind. They reflect man and womankind. Commercially, they're important to the vibrancy of the city. That is the greatest cultural center that exists anywhere on the planet. Anywhere. Broadway, botanical gardens, zoos, museums, performing arts, street artists, you name it. We have it all here. We got Lincoln Center. We got, you know, the Bronx Zoo, the botanical gardens. We got Coney Island. We have it all here. No other place is anything that comes close to this scale. So the arts are fundamental to this city, and they're obviously very fundamental to who I am and what I've been fortunate to experience while I've been here. Well, I think I could say it for everybody. We're looking forward to that day where we could sit with an audience and, and watch a performance again. We need that. We need that. We need that so desperately. You know, it's who we are. That's part of the New York experience. That's part of the experience that that everyone wants. 66 million people, last I checked, probably a low number. They want that same experience. Well, you know, you certainly have an inspirational story. I really love the, I hate to say rags to riches, but, you know, it really from what you're describing, it sounds that way. And you really have shared a lot of, you know, your background uh, in terms of your stances as potential mayor. But I would love for you just to share with our listeners, you know, just really like, why should they vote for you? There's a lot of people running. Obviously, it's a crowded field for this primary. It's a critical position, you know, overseeing the city at a critical time. So, you know, just share with me to our listeners why you feel you're the most qualified and best candidate. So I thank you for that question. One, I'm not a politician. I didn't get termed out. I'm not looking for promotion. I called my 94-year-old mother and said, Mom, I quit my job. And that point, that was a tough conversation. Boy, you have lost your mind. <laughs> I thought you had a good job. I thought you were doing pretty well. I said, Mama, yes, I have. I said, but Mama, just think about the foundation that you gave me and all the things that we had to experience and all the challenges that we've overcome. And there are plenty of people who have gone through and are going through the same challenges that you went through. And then look at that foundation, the opportunities that you and those teachers gave me. And look at what I've been able to do for since I moved to New York almost four, 40 years ago in the most competitive business, that one of the most competitive fields that exists. And I started at the bottom of that and I got to the top. I was the longest standing head of that business in the history of Wall Street. And along the way, I've met a whole bunch of people and developed a lot of relationships. And while doing all that, Mama, we gave back because that's what you taught me to do. And without fanfare, we've been involved in so many organizations. We have so many mentees out there, lives that we've changed. You taught me that when you get to position, you got to re remember the shoulders on which you stand. And then there's a ladder which you extend, which we've done. So the track record is a track record that is unassailable. So I take my lived experiences. I take what I've been able to do and the investments in people and capital that I've been able to do to change people's lives, to take them to no class, to the middle class, to, a, to an upper class, black and brown people, black and brown people. And I take what the city's going to need. There's nobody who's got the lived experiences, nobody who's got the experiences, proven management and leadership. Nobody's got all three and the relationships, and nobody's got a track record of having done investing with mentors without fanfare. And mama, you know what? I'm like Shirley Chisholm, unbought, unbossed, and unbound. We don't want anybody anything. And if less we do it, there's no cavalry coming. And so if there's an element of trust of somebody who has done, 
what he said he was going to do with a track record of changing people's lives, then that's me who can bring this city together and lead the greatest economic, inclusive economic comeback in the history of this city. Nobody else can do that with a track record to support it. So that's why if you're going to place a bet, you place a bet right here because I got a track record of having done it. Managed through crisis, built a team, led a team from the bottom all the way to being highly competitive, to being amongst the best, considered amongst the best. Not a false promise, not a false promise, but a proven track record that you can go bet. Nobody's got that. Well, Ray, I want to thank you for not only being on the podcast, but sharing your story. And I wish you the best of luck. Well, thank you for having me. I'm fortunate to be here with you. And I have so much respect for what you all have been able to build and how you've been able to maintain in the height of this crisis and the existential challenges that we're all trying to meet. And you meet them head on. So I'm honored to be with you. And I'm I'm so deeply appreciative and grateful for the opportunity to be with you. Thank you. Thank you again. Make sure to subscribe to Schneps Connects wherever you get your podcasts or stream us online at podcast.schnepsmedia.com.